The following podcast is a Green Fresh Media production. I think change needs to occur everywhere. I think we need to stop talking about diversity in itself, but just trying to, every time we're implementing a process, trying to think what are the consequences and what are the unintended consequences on diversity. Hey Trailblazers, welcome back to the Business Casual. I hope you're having an amazing day. Thank you so much for pressing play on this episode. If you're new here, my name is Stacey. I'm the host of the show and I'm so excited to have you here. Tuning in for another amazing episode with another Trailblazer. Today I'm joined by Daphne, who is a PhD candidate in strategic management at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto and a PhD research fellow at the Institute of Gender and the Economy. Her research focuses on understanding the mechanisms helping improve the efficiency, diversity interventions, and foster gender equality within organizations. More specifically, she investigates whether and how structural interventions disrupt gender inequality within organizations at the crossroad between strategy and behavioral economics. Her background in engineering and economics has inspired her graduate work to design interventions with an evidence-based approach to reduce the persistent gender and racial differences. I'm so excited to welcome Daphne to the show. How are you today? Good. Nice to meet you, Stacey. Likewise. I'm very intrigued by your research. When I first heard about you and started learning more about your background, I was really intrigued on what you're doing and you know how it is impacting our day-to-day lives in the workplace, as well as our day-to-day lives in our personal lives, in our personal world. So I'm really looking forward to our conversations. I think we can learn a lot from you and your research. So really looking forward to that. But before we get into that, our icebreaker question today is what is your holiday drink, your go-to holiday drink? It can be alcoholic, non-alcoholic. I feel I'm going to be so disappointing. It's just a hot cup of tea. I discovered eggnog when I moved to Toronto and to Canada. I didn't know this, but yeah, it's just a cup of Earl Grey. (laughs) I love that. And where are you from? Like, what is I'm, your? I'm from France. I'm from Paris. Uh, I Beautiful. came here to do to start my PhD studies, and before that, all of my education was in France. So, how are you liking the Toronto weather and the Toronto holiday season? We usually do a good job, I think, around the holidays. I know people are supposed to hate Canadian winter and the Toronto winter, but I actually really enjoy it. It's the first time I see snow on a very <gasps> regular basis. I didn't have this before. And also it's, um, there are more sunlight. There is much more sunlight in Toronto than in Paris during that time. So surprisingly, seasonal depression is better. (laughs) That's very surprising because I was just in Florida when we came back and as soon as the plane landed, it just, I felt like there was a gray paintbrush that just had gone through the whole city. It just looked so gray compared to sunny Florida. But I guess, yeah, it is pretty, I'm, I know in the UK, they have very gray rainy weather. So I guess, is it similar in Paris? I've never been. Okay. Like my, my friends are surprised that I'm being tanned here, which I'm, I'm still very pale, but it's getting that's better. Hilarious. No, that's a really good drink. I asked that question because obviously Starbucks just came out with their holiday beverages. So I've been obsessed. I've had the sugar cookie latte too much in the last like <laughs> week and a half. It is so yummy. Um, and obviously the holiday drinks are always just, yeah, you have to. The, that one's really good. I know the chestnut praline is also really good. So I highly recommend and it's just my favorite time of the year. So I love asking all things holiday <laughs> questions. I know I gave an introduction of you at the beginning of the episode, but I'd love for you to introduce yourself in your own words. And I'd love to hear how you would describe your career, personality, and your passions. Yeah, um, it's very interesting. Like, I think my career was guided through like curiosity. And that's how I had this like line through all of my academic journey and all of this. Um, so 
why did I go into this research? It's initially, I was an engineer and I started my studies about 10 years ago. And we were like, oh, change is going to happen. We're going to see more women and more minorities in STEMs and most specifically in like pure engineering. And I just thought, I've just seen like the numbers stagnating and the same problems going over and over. And then I was like, oh, I want to do something to fix it. And what could be my best way to approach it? Yeah. Uh, and because of my quantitative background, so I was initially majoring in math and also just a pure interest into sociology. I was like, let's look where I can expand this and when I can like put the good basis. So I consider um, entering um, public administration and being a civil servant. But initially, I just wanted to get more knowledge, like what's going on? What are the um, principles that can help guide us to improve diversity um, and try to like really have this rooted in a scientific and evidence-based approach? So I think yeah. that's how I would put it. And for a personality, um, gosh, that's a very hard question to answer. Um, when I started engineering, you usually do those Myers-Briggs tests, right? Yeah, to like indicate like your personality, <laughs> even though it was debunked by science, just saying. Yes, I we did that in a class, but yeah, he's, the professor still made us do the quiz. But then afterwards, he was like, yeah, this is not actually real. And I was like, oh, all right, nice. So what is real? I don't know. Is there a better one out there? I don't know. <laughs> I, it's, it's a mystery. It's like very funny because like people really encourage it. And, um, I was exactly the opposite of what an engineer should be. So like when oh. you are the Myers-Briggs, most of the engineer are like, I think INTP and I was extroverted. I was empathetic. <laughs> and so I was really trying to find a way that would both negotiate my skills with like my personality. And, um, that's where I found research and this like pursuit of knowledge, very, um, thrilling. I love that word, pursuit of knowledge. And how would you describe your passions? Do you have? Do you do anything fun outside of school and research? Do you have any hobbies? I I do. <laughs> I'm trying. I've been having like some medical issues, so usually I love climbing. Uh, but I I'm just like hopefully getting back into it. Um, and the other passion, and I'm actually have it in post a bit in my research, is I'm a big. Um, fan of movies and all directing oh. I actually considered a career in the film industry and same wow. thing thinking about where my skills would be so definitely not acting um and I love being in Toronto because you have the Toronto Film Festival you can volunteer yes. you can attend so many events so I think that was my a bit of a break here also yeah so many things happening with the Odd Dogs Festival so yes. just this I enjoy very much entertainment and movies is such a fun hobby to have and I know my siblings are very into Marvel and like the MCU universe and there's so many you know movies and there's like the different timelines and obviously again I was just in Florida so we were at Disney World and they have you know the Star Wars universe and it's so fun mm. to really like feel part of a community and have these movies that you like comfort movies and obviously I'm going to talk about it again but it's the holidays now the holiday movies are out so that's always really exciting uh, but no it's so great to hear more about you know why you ended up in the field you're in and to hear more about your journey throughout engineering because I know it's something that and I'm sure we're going to get into this is we hear about it a lot women in STEM you know there's a lot of scholarships for women in STEM people are promoting it companies are supposed to hire more women in STEM right now or they're being encouraged to but is that all for show or at the end of the day like are the numbers actually increasing? Are we seeing real change happening in day to day? My first question for you is, can you share more about what a diversity intervention is and maybe what the definition is so we can kind of have a clear understanding of 
you know, what this term really means from a company's perspective. Yes, of course. Um, so just going back to your point about STEM and about the fact that we've seen like so many intervention and whether it's for show, I do not think it's only for show, but I think it's a massive fail. When you look at how much money is invested in all of those diversity initiatives, the return on investment is pretty low and bad. So it's really trying to find a good way to design those programs so that it works. Diversity intervention is actually a very big word that can encompass so many things. And I don't know if there is a clear definition. I think um, a way people think about it is there are two types of way you can have interventions, either trying to change individual beliefs and change how people perceive diversity, perceive other groups. And the other types of interventions are more structural, trying to find a way to change the design so that everyone can have as much opportunity or that you can reduce those gaps that you don't really understand why they are for. So gap between promotion, gap in hiring, and trying to find ways to attract this whole talent pool that it does not feel vested in joining your company, for instance. Um, so I think that's how I would define it. I, I'm really trying to, yeah, I think we can try to like talk about if you want the principles of like what diversity interventions really work. Um, because so far we've been trying to put in diversity training programs or having diversity consultants come in into company. And I don't want to dismiss their work. But not all of this is working because you don't have engagement of the community you're trying to change. Um, so I think like initial approaches were very much approaches where we were trying to control people in the companies, control the managers. And this is um, not my research. Uh, I must recognize and give praise where this is. There's like really good work by Frank Dobin and Alexandra Kalev and also Iris Bonnet. So those are professor um, in sociology from one side and professor in economics that have been trying to like really understand what has been working and they've collected a huge amount of data trying to um, understand not what exactly was the diversity interventions, but all the way people were intervening towards diversity and trying to actually see what works and what does not. And um, things that do not work are usually things where you're trying to change bias. So you're trying to change individual beliefs. It's so hard that you usually get a backlash from it and it's not having the effective support you want to have. Other things that seems to not work is um, system of grievances or like trying to have hiring tests to like more specifically assess candidates because usually uh, when you're trying to put on those systems you actually put on those systems to people that you do not know but you are not fighting the hiring by networks and hiring your friends that are might be like more of the majority group so those are the things that do not work but um, recently, we've been having like pretty good successes in interventions that actually do work. And this is, this is what, like as a researcher, it is so sad when you like do research on diversity. So many times you find how things do not work. For and sure. so when you have those moments when it works, you're just so happy and excited <laughs> because you're like, yes, finally. Um, and I think those... Um, those approaches have been much more the approaches that work on the design. It's not approaches where you're really targeting the diverse group in a sense. It's much more approaches where you're like targeting the system and thinking where the system maybe misses out. 
And so you're not targeting a specific group uh, trying to improve representation. You're just trying to find the tools where actually you can change uh, the system. So um, to let me give you like one of the most impressive example that I know is, um, do you know The Voice? I, yes. Okay. Of course. I, uh, because I come from France, I don't know like <laughs> what is pop culture, what is super famous. You're all or good. Yes, <laughs> okay, so we're good. Yeah, you're good. So, so actually, there is this amazing paper uh, and research done by Claudia Golden and Cecilia Rose, where they look at blind auditions for orchestra. So it used to be that orchestra, you would. Uh, audition in front of the people, they judge, they vote, and they see whether you're going into the orchestra. And the orchestra was really white and male-dominated before. And then all of a sudden, they changed the way you audition, is they put a curtain on, so the physical appearance is not showing anymore, and they're just judging on the melody. And by doing this, I think they increased the likelihood of hiring a woman by 50%. Wow. So those are things that, those are tools. It was not meant to like oh we're going to have more women no we're just expanding the talent pool and we're just having ways that we are removing those initial biases and by just putting this curtain on they actually changed and they were rewarding the best talent so also trying to go against this argument that by doing diversity you're also you're actually against meritocracy, you're just, there is this trade-off between diversity and quality. And actually all of those findings show it's by doing diversity, you're not reducing the quality of people. So that's one of my favorite paper, but I can go more, like you have to stop me, Stacey. Otherwise no, I can no, speak this hours. Is, that is so interesting. I think it's so important also, you know, from the research perspective, because for it to be rooted in research perspectives, because I think, and I'm sure you can either agree or disagree with me here, but you know, with media, and especially what we've seen in the last year is that there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of opinions that are not rooted in fact, but are just rooted in you know personal biases and what people have grown up with. So I think there's been a lot of backlash, and I've seen even on you know on TikTok and on social media, you know, women or you know minority they'll post a video sharing their successes, and someone will always say like, "Oh, diversity higher," or "Oh, yeah. you only got it because you're a woman," and it's so false, and it almost you know pushes us back even further than the goal that everyone's trying to collectively work towards. I feel like my next question for you is, in terms of these interventions, who is responsible for them? Is this something that governments are currently in the process of, you know, implementing frameworks and supporting mm -hmm. the workforce or is it individual companies? You know, who should be advocating and who is really at the forefront of implementing these changes to, you know, really see change in the workplace? Yeah, this is this is a very good question. I think it's actually work at every level. So in my dissertation, I look at every level of where we can implement change. So I look both at regulatory approaches, I look at within firms, and I look also at within the industry. Uh, so I think change needs to occur everywhere. I think we need to stop talking about diversity in itself, but just trying to, every time we're implementing a process, trying to think what are the consequences and what are the unintended consequences on diversity? And especially about this like diversity hire and term, it's very funny. I'm, it's very funny, but very sad at the same time. Uh, what you see here is what I've been exposed when I was um, passing my national exam from engineering, you would get this comment by boys, uh, 
like you in France, you have this national exam where you're ranked and it's only on quality. And there are two parts. There is the writing part and the oral part. And as soon as you were doing the oral part as a woman and you had qualified in terms of like the exams, they would say, oh, but you're just it's just because you're a woman and engineering school want more women. It's not at all based on your talent. So unfortunately, I've heard this so many times, which is just ridiculous. Um, It's just, it's it's infuriating. Yeah. It's really infuriating. And I'm um, like, it's, yeah, I cannot tell you how much it pisses me off and you just work harder and harder. And I think the only, on a personal note for like every one of the listeners, it's just like, you keep going and you Mm -hmm. like, you dismiss and you stop hearing those comments and actually your work and what you will do will prove them wrong. So that's my own personal advice on facing this. And But I know how people must be pissed when they hear this. And I feel you. I got you. And I've been there. Um, and I, I think the other side of your research as well is in gender inequality as a whole. And, you know, I think something we've talked about a bit on this podcast is that you think because we're so advanced as a society, you know, we're in 2021, we have such advanced technology, you know, medical equipment, all of that, we, we feel as though in the workplace and there's been a lot of change and we've come really far from like, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s. But even still, there are limitations, I would say, um, being a woman in the workplace. Do you have yeah. any insights and have you done any research in terms of maybe like career progression or work-life balance? I know it's something that's also been talked about a lot now. Um, do you have any insights on that or something that you also do research in? Yeah, no, of course. Uh it's actually, yeah, there are things where we've made progress, like access to education, labor force participation, but those progress are always challenged and the pandemic really has been showing this. So the pandemic was qualified as the first she session, which is a mix between she and recession. Usually oh, when you have a typical- I've never heard that. You really? Oh, it's- Yeah. It's, the pandemic was a crisis that was very different um, in terms of economic consequences compared to past crises we've seen, such as the financial crisis. And this was due mainly because uh, women had to go back home, take care of their children. There was no daycare anymore. And you really saw that the burden of the woman, like the burden stumbled upon the woman. And it's actually, I, I really want to specify this. It's not because fathers did not want to help, but it's also because you have so much stereotypes that the employer expects women to do the work and not necessarily right. the men. So uh, fathers kept on having this like workload going on and women had to deal with both loads. And uh, it has uh, horrifying consequences in terms of like how it's pushing us back uh, in terms of progress. We've seen a reduction into labor force participation, uh, women just exiting because they could not deal with both um, like having to take care of their place at home or not. So it is a big problem. How are we considering like work-life balance? And I think it's a big problem, not only for women, but also for men, because as much as we've seen an evolution of women and women's roles, we've also seen an evolution of men and men's role, men being more accepting of like being taking care of their children, being like a real father to their kids. And unfortunately in our current models, we're not allowed to thrive and to take care in any way that we want. And so there's this really cool research that shows how um, how work is going is actually detrimental to both men and women. 
Uh, and so we need to arrange this. We need to fix this. And that's why um, there is this whole uh, feminist recovery program uh, by the Institute of Gender in the Economy trying to offer some proposals like how you could have paid leaves, uh, like personal leave and maternity leave, paternity leave. How can you make this affordable? How can we make daycare affordable? I'm, I'm so shocked when I see women having to negotiate, like having, because the cost of daycare is as much as the cost of like having your job. Yeah. Women are withdrawing from their careers in order to have, like to take care of their children. This should not be like, this should not be the dilemma they should be faced with. And that's that's where we have a big problem. And do you think working from home, I know you mentioned, you know, the pandemic, obviously there were a lot of challenges. And one thing is that companies transitioned from working in the office to working at home. And I think a lot of people are for this idea because they spend more time at home. But then again, it's the balance between doing work and being able to spend time with family. You know, here in Canada, for example, we had our schools were shut down for almost eight months you know yes. parents were had the responsibility and the burden of also helping their children being ensuring they were on their screens and they had to be doing their homework so now with the shift between working from in the office and working from home do you think that will further you know detriment the work-life balance and the the role of women in the workplace or do you think that's something that might actually help as people spend more time at home uh, I think we really need to go for an hybrid approach so that was uh, before the pandemic, there were initial work about how does working from home help or not? Because working from home gives you more flexibility, like you are more in control of how you work. And actually, there has been some research pointing that you're more productive, so you're doing better work. Unfortunately, um, in this research, they were also showing uh, how not being in the office would limit the contact you would have with your managers and would actually limit the number of like how you would be promoted. So not being right. there, even though you're doing better work, not being there actually was impeding your career progress. And I think that's where we have this like really double-edged sword with working from home. And um, maybe, so to be honest, this is what I'm doing right now. I'm having this like hybrid approach where I'm coming like two or three days in the office and two days from home. I'm actually like having my deep work days and research days when I'm at home, I have no distraction. I'm just focusing. And I have the other days, like having meetings, having those interactions that are actually really, really important for your professional development. And I think this is the um, warning I would give to some people that are like, oh, why should we like go into the office? Um, like those small interactions make such a difference on your idea generation, your career, that I think it's worth it. Yeah. And I think also even outside of a professional setting, just building those social skills, I think especially as someone who's entering the workforce like for the first time, like as a new grad, it's really important to not feel isolated like in your apartment yeah. on your own 24-7 and interact with people who are, you know, older than you or learn from those in the office that might have been there for 20 years that you won't interact with on a day-to-day -day basis if you're working from home. I think it's also equally as important. And even from online school perspective, I just think it's really difficult to build those soft skills that are really necessary to thrive in the workplace from working from home standpoint. So I think that's also another side that is sometimes overlooked when we look at kind of the pros and cons at a very high level of working from home or working in the office. Yeah. And the other thing that I would really mention, especially for like when we're going back to like our diversity interventions and what works, 
a thing that works is mentoring and being mentored. Mm. Unfortunately, to be mentored, you need to look out for those people and you need to like try to find those connections. And I feel like if you are isolated at home, you're going to miss out on a lot of information. I wouldn't be there without tons of mentors that have helped me uh, grow into who I am. Um, and also something that's really important is um, to know, and a big advice is a mistake you make is thinking a mentor is like just one person, but it's actually not. You have multiple mentors and everyone brings you different things and different knowledge. And I think um, that's a big danger and that's something I would warn against. Like really, um, especially if you're like in your 20s and you're like just getting out of undergrad, uh, finding those people that are a bit ahead in your career and that can inspire you and drive you. I've learned so much from these people. And also something that I say is, not only people further read, but also some peers. Like you cannot uh, imagine how much you learn from your peers and how much everyone already knows. And you just have to share this like information to make it happen. As a coffee lover and someone who's always on the go, I'm so excited to be partnering with my favorite flash brew coffee brand, Two Bears. With a mission to energize your mission and your moments, I truly stand for their brand. Their beverages use the highest quality, natural, and plant-based ingredients for all you oat milk lovers out there. They're proudly Canadian and even ethically sourced. If you're looking for the perfect drink to get you to the holidays, head over to twobears.ca and use code CASUAL10 for 10% off your order. Again, that's twobears.ca, code CASUAL10, for 10% off your order. The business casual is such a huge advocate for mentorship. So I'm so glad you brought that up. And, you know, on that, do you have any tips for, I think something with mentorship is that people maybe like find a mentor or two, or they know they have someone, you know, in their personal professional life that they would like to mentor them. Um, and they have maybe trouble like reaching out or they feel awkward. Like, obviously sometimes you're not going to go up to them and say like, oh, hey, can you be my mentor? And like, tell me all of your, like, your, your knowledge and all of that. So do you have any tips for maybe like from a networking perspective, how to connect with these people um, or how do you know build a long-term relationship? Yeah, of course. I think the first thing is don't be afraid to ask and not necessarily directly ask to be a mentor, but don't mm. be afraid to ask questions. Reach out to people. You'd be surprised uh, how willing people are to help. And that's a big, um, like, misconceptions some people have if they're answering and if they're ready to help just use them uh, in a good sense um, so for instance every time someone reaches about the PhD program I'm always happy to answer them to take time to hope on a call and then afterwards it's much more how do you drive and how do you create a relationship out of this yes. so you get this initial contact and just try out um, I remember I got an I remember I got an internship at Berkeley and I was from France and I had no hope. Like it was Berkeley. I was like, I just reached out and I was like, oh, I got no chance. Uh, and then I got the interview and I got in and I was like, I was not expecting it. And I was like, why did you do this? And the person told me so little people reach out to me. So just the fact that you're manifesting interest into this work, that's already a big signal of your willingness to learn and to go for it. And then afterwards, it's just like, how are you making sure this relationship is growing? So maybe just trying to have discussion, trying to like, if the mentor is giving you advice, try to follow up on the advice. Or if you yeah. do not follow up, explain. Um, because like this, they can have a signal of, 
are you are you really committing to this? So I think that's what I would say. Um, the other thing is, it can be intimidating to come to someone and be like, oh, I want you to be my mentor. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, a big thing to ask too. I know, and I want everything. Like, I've never... I have had people con that I consider as my mentors. I've never told them that they were my mentors. <laughs> I thank them. Like, that's the thing is like, I take the time to thank my mentors and I have learned different pieces. And like, it's knowing what you want to get from them. What's the most important part, the most inspiring part you find from them. So um, let me try to give you an example, a precise example, so that it's more concrete for you guys. Um There was this person, and I'm, I'm I'm taking this example because it's someone I didn't interact so much. So it's just to show you the power of inspiration and that you just don't need to interact so much. There was this um, amazing woman, uh, Sila Kilikot, who was the head of my lab uh, when I was in Berkeley. And she was not my direct manager. Okay. But I would see how she would behave towards her supervisee to towards everyone she would always have 15 minutes every week to spend with you to make to help you make progress she was super dedicated always the first in but she was also the first out because she was showing that she had kids and she was doing the work but she was giving the signal that it's normal to go home and to take care of your children which is and so important especially from a manager point of view it was so impressive because she was showing you can be a well-rounded individual and do amazing work and be a lead. And what was inspiring me when I was younger is how everyone in the lab was there because of her. It was not only because of the job, but they were like, I'm growing so much under her that I want to stay here. I want to do the best work I can do to be with her as my leader. And that was so impressive, especially coming from engineer. Like, I think we were three women in the labs. So it's not like... And like out of the three women, we were two interns. Oh <laughs> so it was gosh. so good to see the respect people were having for her. And that really led me to like go talk to her, um, trying to get some glimpse of how she was working to understand how, how can I reproduce those patterns? How can I be her? Like I've always had this list of like looking at people, what are the characteristics that I value and what are the characteristics that I do not value? So yeah. really like learning this and trying to like every time I've got an experience being like okay those are good those are bad and trying to make sure I'm like trying to lead um onto their paths and like trying to be on their paths that's so important I think it also helps you when you're trying to find people who you, you, maybe you look up to or you eventually want to be like or they have a role that you want to do I think it also helps you reflect on who you are as a person and what you actually want because it's something that yes. it's sometimes difficult to do it's sometimes hard to answer those questions I think we talked about it on a re recent episode that it's difficult sometimes to answer these types of questions about who you really are and what you really want to do and what your core values are so I think looking at people who are there above you. And I think you mentioned it as well as even people who are at the same level as you or even below you. I think you can learn something from everyone. And yeah. it's a value that I really try and practice in my life. Whenever I meet anyone, everyone has a different story and different journey that you can learn from and then implement in your life. So I just wanted to kind of piggyback off that and share that. And then one last thing I wanted to touch on, going back to a bit of the diversity interventions and just the whole conversation we've had as a whole, I, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, The goal is not to blame anyone. And I think that's something that sometimes um, 
as society, we try and point fingers and we try and find the root cause and say, well, it was your fault. Or, you know, if something goes wrong in the workplace, well, I wasn't in charge of that. It was your fault. It was, you know, you were late. And I think it kind of sets us back almost because the more we're able to work collectively as a whole towards a shared vision and idea, the more we're able to all faster get to that goal because the more hands on deck, you know, the easier it'll be to get there. So just kind of tying up this whole conversation, can you maybe touch on, you know, that idea of not putting blame on anyone and maybe small changes that listeners can make in their everyday lives to really help work towards this collective goal? Yeah, I think I think it's very important. When you're saying not to blame anyone, there's two things. I think there's, at the start of like this finger pointing concept is the, the idea that we want people to be accountable. And this is important, actually. It's important to be accountable and to be transparent. And I think um, what the research has found is when you start measuring goals, when you start like trying to get an idea to try to see where things are working or not, uh, it's very important. But the problem is if you start finger pointing and blaming and not being like, oh, this is work in progress. We're not doing great. Let's try to see how we're improving. That's good. But when you start to blame people, people will just backfire upon you. They will feel cornered and they won't be, I think like, especially in this polarized society, they don't want to make any more progress. They're like, oh, oh, okay. Like that's, that's the walk mode. I don't want to deal with the walk mode. And that's not what we want. We really want to have effective project, effective uh, progress to make change. Um, And so I think it's just trying to like being, taking count of like where you're doing as an organization as an individual um it's actually it's very I I really love this about my supervisor is uh so my supervisor is professor Sarah Kaplan and she's the head of the Institute of Gender and the Economy and it's not only that she does the research it's not only that she tries to amass our information it's she's trying to act ethically towards this diversity goal at every moment and I really love this about her because she's not she's doing what she says and uh, she always pushes me so let's take an example like a concrete example I was facing I was organizing a panel for a conference and something that I always try to think about is how can I have a diverse panel a diverse panel with people from the expertise like competent people but to make sure that I'm not going to those automatical famous name I think something we're always struggling as academics is because we know like it's still very uh, male and white dominated that every time you see a name you tend to think oh he's a guy instead of thinking oh it could be a woman and like it, it horrifies me that me as like this scholar trying to work on diversity, I do have this association. I'm not perfect, um, but it's much more like how can you make sure that you're investing time every time to try to like act, yeah. not not just be like posting things on social media, but just really acting. And how do you address this? So, for instance, on the panel, I had a very um, I had a panel that was very either white or Asian. And like, I wanted to have a shortlist that was more diverse. That meant spending five more hours than what I should have initially spent. It's costly to work towards diversity. It's not easy. And so I was scouring everything to try to find who are the scholars that are working in this area? Is there anyone I'm overlooking that's doing work on this, but didn't have their voice empowered before? 
And that's how you do the work. It's like, how are you acting on those small days um, and those small things? Um, another example that I have is I was talking about like people reaching out for PhD. When I applied for the PhD, I didn't know if I stood a chance. Um, I knew no one that had applied to a North American school before. Actually, uh, four of my friends, we were applying for PhD and I just didn't know. And the first time I got someone got back to me to like have an interview, I thought it was a joke because the person had put the email in Comics on MS. Oh no, not like, Comics Hands. No, I know. No. And, and, and he was an astronomer and like it was this super famous on wikipedia and i got this comics on ms message and i was like oh someone must be scamming me but why would you scam someone on phd application <laughs> and there was this whole process i was like what's going on and so something i tried to do is i know how hard it is to go to university how privileged it is so every time i got someone that reached me out from a developed country that had no idea how this system works i'm happy to share everything to give insights on like like every tacit knowledge that you cannot find in sharing material it's those kind of attention those kind of gestures every day that would make a change so um for a day-to-day -day change you could do it's like try to question how automatic things are for you every time in the process be a real ally and not being a performative ally that would be yeah. my my comment on this and i think one thing that you mentioned earlier about accountability is very important and something that everyone needs to reflect upon and really take the time to like you said acknowledge take accountability and then work towards everyday change so thank you one for being an advocate as well as sharing your research The next question I wanted to ask is for anyone listening who maybe is thinking, this is a really cool area. I would love to do research further, maybe not in diversity and gender, but maybe in another area. What process is it like to maybe get a PhD in business? You know, what advice would you have? And maybe what steps could students do in undergrad to maybe think about if this path is right for them? Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And I think Doing a PhD is not something necessarily you're being really exposed to, or at least when I was doing my um, undergrad and my master's in engineering, I didn't know initially I wanted to do a PhD. It was my exposure at Berkeley to a research center that f for the first time I was like, oh, I'm starting to get a sense of what this whole PhD thing is. Um, and that's when I started considering. So it was very late in my education. It was definitely not when I was in undergrad and I think there were like different things that were going on. I was like, oh, I'm not smart enough for a PhD. <laughs> so that was the first like mental block no, I had. We, imposter syndrome, we don't, we don't love imposter syndrome. I know, but like, it's, it's so real. I always yeah. thought, so I have two master's degree. I'm in a PhD in a top school, but I always felt that it was a part of luck. And I just like entered, like the, the door was open and I just came in. <laughs> That's, That's my vision about it. But I think first comes, it's like, what do you do in a PhD? And that's like, people don't really fully get this. So you do pure research, but it's not necessarily disconnected research. So I think a lot of um, misconceptions coming from academia is the fact that, oh, those are people in ivory tower. They have no experience in companies. They don't know what to do. And they just come in with their like, important papers that no one read and what's the impact and I think for me the initial thing that got me into this is like seeing how you can change the conversation 
how you can change the conversation to policy, how you can change the conversation with students. I think a big part of our work is not only um, to diffuse to other academics, but it's also to engage the students we're interacting with and to like force them to think about things differently. Um, what got me into your PhD in business and what's a PhD in business? Um, I think what got me into a PhD in business is not the title first. It's not about getting the degree. When you're doing a PhD, it's definitely not about, you're not doing this for the prestige or if you're doing this for the prestige, then you're immensely wrong because you could sacrifice five, six years of your life for something you're not really committed to it. So actually what got me was the research, was reading the papers, um, looking at what people are doing. So I'm, I'm trying to give another example, very different from diversity so that people can relate in other terms. So for instance, a really cool research that I enjoy was research about intellectual property okay. and how intellectual property can help innovation. And there is this researcher, so that we have first we have a very good economics of innovation center at U of T, but I'm not going to try to like just praise and tout my own university, but like check them out. They're amazing. But for instance, um, Ivy Williams, who's a researcher now, I think at Stanford, her research was actually used in a Supreme Court case about how you sh should patent genes or not. And I think wow, it's just, that's, that's intense. I know. And it's just like realizing that you're you're building up and you're creating knowledge. And I think that's the part that's like the hardest transition. And I think for me, what was the most difficult is I enjoy absorbing knowledge, learning and learning. When you go into the PhD, it's like this big shift of trying to create and produce and then building up the blocks so that it informs policy, it informs companies and to try to like make the best decision out of this. So, um, a very good metaphor I've had from a professor, from Professor McGahan, was as a researcher, you have this like big puzzle, let's say, that you want to like address. And every one of your papers is very specific and you're just building piece by piece. But hopefully later on, you will have this like whole image of like how you can contribute to the world. And this can be in many ways. So um, PhD in business is a very... It's a very cool area to do a PhD in. First, despite the appearance, we're not just interested in profit. So as you can see with my work, it's like about reducing inequality. Um, most of the time, it's really like interdisciplinary work. So mm -hmm. you have usually five branches into business. You have strategic management, which is uh, the area where I am, uh, which is a mix between economics, sociology and strategy. Um, you have organizational behavior, which is like psychology and sociology. You have accounting. And by I'm saying accounting, it's like, I know accounting might seem like super boring. Who wants to do a PhD in accounting? They're looking at like everything, which is like about transparency, um, disclosure, what are companies revealing, how they're inducing fraud. So there is like such fascinating research in all of those areas. It's It's really cool. And you can find your happiness and I think when something that's unique is this multidisciplinary approach forces you to think about a problem in different way and to not dismiss other ways of doing research, which I, I really enjoy. I think one thing I wanted to add is so I found Daphne through one of my professors at U of T and his research, and I don't want to get this wrong, but 
his research at a very high level is about um, entrepreneurs and how soft skills can, or certain skills that um, you can develop can help you become a more successful entrepreneur. I know most of his work was done in um, developing markets where entrepreneurism isn't as isn't the same as the way it is here in North America. And so again, it's it's interesting because as someone in business and obviously as I'm completing my commerce degree, you learn these fundamental skills, you learn the frameworks, you just take everything though. And it's interesting because the PhD level, you're not just taking it, you're the one either creating it or challenging it. Like, like for example, with you and the diversity work you're doing, it, it's not about just looking at what's already been done, but it's saying, well, how can we change this? And is this really effective? And so it really is something that I think if you're interested in a really specific niche within business or in any category to look at either doing a PhD or doing more research. Um, But the last thing I want to ask you, Daphne, is if you had one piece of advice that you wanted to leave listeners with that you either wish you knew when you started your career or that you've been given that's really stuck out. I would say trust your intuition. I I think that's the biggest advice I got. Um, It was like we were talking about mentors and it was a mentor and it was at the end of my degree in engineering. I had like very good job offers and I had this opportunity to do a master's in economics and it was not an easy decision there would be multiple ways and there was this very impressive guy very um like I I admired him because he was so smart and like you can really recognize people that are smart because they can see like they can make any problems that is the most complex, very simple. And he had this ability to synthesize and get the information and take a decision. Not at all, like the most humble person. And he was a CEO and he was offering me a job. I was like, oh, that's pretty (laughs) impressive. Like this, this very impressive guy wants to like, um, has faith in me and wants me to like grow up in his company. And we were talking and the first thing that he saw is that I was having this like inner passion for research and for econ and for trying to do some social good, but in a way that was not um, like how I make social change within an organization, but more about social change at another level. And he was like, I can give you any good advice, but first don't try to plan five years ahead. So you can have big objectives and big goals, have your direction, had, like be clear on your direction, but don't try to control everything. And then he was like, you have this amazing position I can offer you, but your gut is somewhere else. And like, you don't want to go there. So just trust your feeling. And it was so interesting because I, I'm very grateful to him because he was not, he was giving me really self-interested advice. He was like, I, I can convince you to come. I would be so happy to have you and you have this. But just trust yourself and where you're going. And I think that's something that takes time. When you're an undergrad, you always want to absorb advice. You want to like learn about how everyone is doing everything. Um, but at some point, you have to trust yourself. Like have your own voice and go for it. And no matter, you will make mistakes. You will make so many mistakes. But that's how <laughs> you learn. Um, and like you might make bad decisions and you will have bad experiences. The better, the earlier, the better, because like this, you really know what you want in life. And so I think this is, that's the thing I would say. That's definitely not the advice I would have given. Like in my early years, like I would have been like, you need to do this and this and like uh, be strategic about this. Um, But now I'm just much more like have faith in yourself 
Like, yeah. And I think, you know, as we approach the end of the year and we're entering a new year, I think it's a great time for people. A lot of people take time to reflect on the year they've had, set goals for the year to come. And so I think at this stage of the year, a lot of people get caught up in, I didn't achieve this. I didn't do this. Next year, I need to get this goal. And I think, you know, based on your advice, just to reiterate, I would just say like, yeah, trust yourself. And I think having direction is really important, but also you can't plan everything. So sometimes it's okay to take the path that you wouldn't have taken normally and definitely trust yourself. Daphne, thank you so much for joining us here on the Business Casual. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and we will see you next week. Perfect.